Hi everyone, and welcome to the Hockey Journey Podcast, episode number 11, the Ross Bernstein Hockey Journey, presented to you by OnlineHockeyTraining.com. I'm your host, Coach Lance Pitlick. If you're new here, please make sure you subscribe so you won't miss out on any future episodes. Before we get this party started, if you want to learn more about me, my hockey experiences, what I know, and most importantly, how I've been helping hockey players get really good with a stick and puck, just head on over to OnlineHockeyTraining.com and gain instant access to my 10-part video series where I'll show you everything. Consider it my gift to you. Everyone, I can't tell you how excited I am about my next guest on the Hockey Journey podcast. This individual is a best-selling author of nearly 50 sports books, a world-renowned and award-winning peak performance business speaker who's keynoted conferences on all seven continents, which not many speakers at his level can say. He's been featured on thousands of television and radio programs over the years and has spent the better part of the past 25 years studying the DNA of championship teams, interviewing thousands of players and coaches. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming a first-class human being, a good friend, Ross Bernstein, to the show. Hi, Ross, and welcome to the Hockey Journey Podcast. Oh my gosh, Pitt. It is so great to see you. Thank you for having me on. This is awesome to reconnect. Well, uh, I have to uh, start off by making an apology, apology to you uh, in preparing for this episode and doing some research on you. I guess I knew very little about Ross Bernstein. I thought, uh, you know, last I checked, you, you wrote a couple books and that's where it ended for me. Uh, I guess I've been deep in my own stuff. But as I got deeper into my investigation of you, Man, you've put together a body of work that's incredible. Congratulations, Ross. Oh, man, that, that means so much coming from you. Thank you. I, You know, you were a couple of years ahead of me at school at the University of Minnesota, and you were one of the guys I looked up to so much. And we've been able to connect here all these years later. I've interviewed you for several, several of my books, and uh, you are just one of my all-time favorite human beings. You are, you are uh, just I'm just so proud of you and your success and what you've done and now with your, your legacy, with your family and your kids and what they're doing and the business you've built with Sweet Hands and Sweet Hockey. It's just, it's just awe-inspiring. So I'm honored to be a guest on your podcast. And when you reached out to me, I was just giddy. I told my wife, I said, can you believe it? I'm going to be on a podcast with Pitt. This is about as cool as it gets. <laughs> well, I think uh, first, thank you for that. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm new to this thing, so I'm hoping that you can help me uh, spike my ratings. But uh, today, it's not going to be about me, Ross. It's going to be about you. So uh, before we get into some of your books that you've written, uh, to get things started, tell us about your childhood, where you grew up, your introduction to hockey and other sports you played. I guess basically give us a snapshot of what it was like growing up Ross Bernstein. <laughs> well, thank you. So I grew up in the booming metropolis of Fairmont, Minnesota, a tiny little town six miles from the Iowa border in the middle of nowhere, where I grew up loving sports. I My earliest memories was uh, playing sports. I love sports. I wasn't very good at sports, but I, I love them. Uh, my hockey journey started, believe it or not, when I was 10, and I watched The Miracle on Ice rock my world, change my world. I, 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 say, I begged my mom and dad, please let me play hockey. Now, you got to understand some about Southern Minnesota, okay? This is wrestling country, basketball country. This isn't like Roseau, War Road, International Falls, where they pull the kids out of the wombs by their skate blades. <laughs> this is different, okay? 
but I begged my parents to let me go to the Herb Brooks hockey camp. He had a hockey camp that year. I went to the Coast to Coast hardware store. We got sticks and, and tape. We had to drive to Mankato, the next big town, to get all the stuff, and I got all the stuff, and I, I, I got the Cooperalls, and I was out there, and, and I, was, I was an ankle bender. I could barely stand up, and I remember one day in practice, Herbie came up to me, and he was larger than life, and he put his arm around me, and he said, way to go, Ross. He knew my name because it was written with tape on my head, and, and, he, and he actually gave me an award. And if a lot of your listeners know about sports, you know, there's all kinds of great awards you can get. But I actually won the most improved award for the guy who sucks the most. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was me. But Southern Minnesota hockey, it was old school. We, we weren't like you rich cake eaters from me dining with your fancy Zambonis, all right? Where we grew up, we had shovels. And we didn't have fancy buses driving us around. We had vans and pickup trucks. All the farm kids had vans and you'd pile in. You'd have the chain smoking parents up front and the nuclear hockey equipment smell in the back. We'd pile in. And uh, I wanted becoming the, as a freshman in high school, the starting left defenseman for the mighty Fairmont Cardinal slash Domino's Pizza hockey team. We were um, we were pretty bad, Pitt. Our high school wouldn't even sponsor us. We were the pizza boys, which did not, <laughs> did not go over well. But, you know, growing up in a small town, I got to play three varsity sports as a freshman. And I look at our kids today, you know, specializing, just doing one thing. And, and you know, the day of being a well-rounded athlete, it, it, it certainly uh, harkens to a better time. So I was lucky that I got to play a lot of different sports. You know, when it was football season, I played football. When it was baseball season, I played baseball. And, hey, then I was excited to play hockey. So uh, I, I played and then played, you know, I played high school and then I came to the U like you and I was in awe of guys like you and the Hankinson brothers and all these amazing hockey players. I, I got season tickets. This is in the late eighties. And then it turned out there was, there was a class you could take. It was called introduction to ice hockey 101. This is the, you know, the underwater basket weaving class you, you varsity players took for your scholarships. So I took this class, and for three days a week, for one hour, I got to skate in Mariucci Arena with actual, real-life gopher hockey players. It was amazing, and I wound up becoming friends with a bunch of guys in the team. I'd bring them over, over to my fraternity parties, and we'd drink beer, uh, allegedly. And after a while, I got to know a bunch of guys, and eventually, a bunch of the guys said, You know, Ross, you're not that bad of a hockey player. Why don't you try out for the team? Why don't you walk on? So I took this huge leap of faith, and I walked on to play hockey at the University of Minnesota. And uh, it, I got to tell you, it was the thrill of a lifetime. I was a pylon out there, but I was out there. And sure enough, my new buddies were passing me the puck. Now, after a while, I'm out there, and I'm thinking, you know what? I got to do something for the coaches to notice me, something to, 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 just do, to just have them say my name and put me potentially in the lineup, right? I mean, I'm hoping to get JV time, anything. <laughs> and uh, one day in practice, an opportunity presents itself when our team captain, Todd Richards, comes down one-on-one. -on -one. It's a line shift. It's just me and Todd, and I said, this is it. We're right by the bench. I said, I'm going to take out our star player right in front of the coaches. They're going to have to put me in the lineup, right? I mean, it's like the first day of prison. You shank the biggest dude in the yard on day one, right? That's just how it works. <laughs> You're going to have a very uncomfortable evening. So... He sees me coming. He knows I'm going to nail him. I got him lined up, but it's like he doesn't even brace himself. I'm like, okay, dude, this is going to hurt. Now, Richards, on this particular practice, he's wearing this really weird jersey. It's all white with a big red cross on the front and back, which I assumed could only mean one thing, bullseye, right? <laughs> so I line him up. 
I level him. It's the greatest hit of my life right in front of the Wooger, right in front of Bill Butters. Everyone's there. I'm thinking, I'm going in. It's fuzzy from here, Pitt. But I can tell you that after flying through the air backwards and literally coming to from being knocked unconscious, all I remember was waking up to Bill Butters, for your listeners, a former former gopher, former North Stars goon, a, a professional fighter, basically, uh, with one hand around my neck, the other in a fist, ragdolling me, screaming, you idiot, what are you doing? Our team captain's wearing a Red Cross jersey today. That means he's injured. I'm sorry, Coach, I had the pizza jersey. I didn't get the memo. <laughs> well, Coach Wu Coach called me into his office and said, kid, this is the end of the line. i got to let you go. And that was the day my dream of hoisting the Stanley Cup died. I was devastated. But it turned out, unbeknownst to me, there was another job opening on the team. It wasn't quite as sexy as All-American defenseman, my first choice, but it was close. Team mascot, Goldie the Gopher. Two criteria for the job. You had to be a decent skater and a moron. I apparently fit on both accounts and became a giant smelly rodent. <laughs> and that was it, man. I wound up writing a book about that as a senior in, in, in college. My very first book, it was, it was called Gopher Hockey by the Hockey Gopher. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. Nearly 50 sports books later, I somehow made a career out of it. So that's my crazy long story of how I got into the hockey world uh, by taking on our star player. And here I am all these years later talking to one of my heroes, Lance Pitt. Like, go figure, pinch oh, me, Pitt. That, that is uh, such a good story. Um, I, I want to kind of go back to what you were talking about back in Fairmont because uh, times are different now. And we're going to get back to your days at Goldie because there, there's a lot of really good stories there. And, and uh, that kind of started your, your book journey. But, uh, you know, you, you have a daughter. I believe she's a competitive soccer player uh, in the arts. Also, uh, it's a passion yeah. of hers. Uh, so you know how things have changed since we we were kids. I, it's just there's you don't see the multi-sport athlete. You might be the last yeah. multi-sport athlete there ever was. <laughs> I think Joe Mauer did okay. <laughs> but I mean, what what do you think? Uh, you know, you've interviewed a lot of uh, a lot of professional players and coaches and stuff. You know, is, is that is that kind of the the route that someone has to go nowadays to even have a chance to? to get an opportunity at the higher levels. You know, it, it's so hard because, you know, all the coaches say they want kids to be well-rounded, but then they expect them to be on the AAA traveling teams. They expect them to be at all the summer camps. They expect them to do all these things. So you're just, as a parent, you're a horrible parent. I mean, I, I mean, my, my kid was in competitive soccer and it was like, if you were, if you didn't, if you didn't toe the line, you, you know, you were an outcast, right? So it was, it was challenging. And, you know, I just, I was lucky. I grew up in a small town and we, we needed warm bodies. You know, that's just how it was. And honestly, when it was, we didn't have an arena. We played outdoors. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was going to be skating all summer. We, we didn't have ice, literally. I had to drive to Mankato or New Ulm or Wyndham had a rink or we'd, you know, we'd go to the cities uh, and we'd, we'd play hockey. So it was summer. I was playing American Legion baseball and VFW baseball and we just did other things. And I don't know if it was right or wrong, but, you know, I can tell you, um, you know, today I serve as the president of the Herb Brooks Foundation, and I can tell you that our, our mission is to to grow the game and get more kids playing and what we call structured, unstructured ice hockey. 
uh, where they're just playing. They're just having fun. There's no parents. There's no coaches. It's just kids out, you know, like little kids having fun. I mean, that, you know, Herb Brooks used to always say that his dream team would have been a team of orphans. No parents <laughs> screwing things up, right? Yeah. And I'm sure you can relate these days with, with everything you're doing. But, you know, I, I don't I don't know if it's right or wrong. I, I know that we're producing more top-end talent than ever before because we've got such a great infrastructure. We've got people like you who were former NHL players who chose to live here, raise their kids here, and, you know, have these aftermarket programs where you can hone your skills and you can get better and, and you can um, – you can really learn so much. I mean, we all, all of our, you know, it's like Indiana basketball or Texas football or Iowa wrestling, right? I mean, this is this is the birthplace. All the players live here. They want their kids to excel. So, um, you know, I, I just look at, I just figure I'm lucky that I had the childhood that I had. Uh, I wasn't very good at anything, but I, I love sports. And I'm like you, Pitt, I'm lucky that I was able to find a way to make my career doing what I'm really passionate about. And that's, and that's you know, luckily being in the world of sports. Yeah. No, so true, so true. So one thing, you know, that you talk about, uh, you know, the the coaching and, you know, there's a lot of different uh, things available to players nowadays. One shift that happened for me was when, like, YouTube became mainstream and being able to, to access information and to really research uh, anyone from all over the world. Uh, in, in, in your, you know, journey, how, how did that help, you know, when you started getting into the, to the book business, was that, uh, still calling people or was the internet, you know, kind of where it was now? You know, it's weird. I was kind of on that bubble. I, I really, you know, I didn't probably fully embrace it as a researcher. I did. And certainly YouTube was great for watching plays or doing different things and, and, and transcribing interviews, you know, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming, I'm kind of old school. I still really relish and enjoy interviewing athletes. And, you know, I'm a member of the media, so I get press pass access, but you never get a good interview just holding a camera or a microphone in a guy's face. You know, they give you the old Bull Durham answers, or, you know, get pucks deep. We're going to take it one game at a time. Yeah. You know, you don't get anything good. So I always loved, you know, getting cell numbers and calling guys and really the way you would get those cell numbers was by, you know, giving away lots of books and being at all the golf tournaments and building relationships organically, authentically, and then asking for a cell phone or saying, hey, Pitt, would you give me so-and-so's number? Would you vouch for me? Sure. And then you get a guy and they go, hey, I got, I got 20 minutes. I'm on the way to the airport. Well, how can I help you? And then you ask them a question. Now they're going to settle in and, you know, then they're going to share a really good story. And, you know, I'm a storyteller and that's... And, and But I'm not the hero of my own story. I like sharing other people's stories. So when I can celebrate other you know, great athletes and, and their, their journey like you're doing now as a journalist now, you're sharing stories. I, I love that. So, you know, social media was um, – but it is amazing. I mean, the playing field has been leveled. You know, kids today, they'll, they'll, you know, you'll see a kid who's an amazing face-off artist. And he's like, yeah, I just watched YouTube. Or, you, or, or Justin Bieber. He didn't need a record label to become famous. He needed YouTube. Yeah. You know, I look back, you know, I, I had two brothers that graduated from the U and went on to get their Ivy League MBAs. And this is what my parents wanted me to do. And I said, I want to use my graduate school money uh, to write and publish a book. I had to leverage my future, literally all my, you know, I had no, I had no, no fallback, right? I look at kids now, they go, oh, you know, I want to be, I want to do what you do. I'm like, are you kidding me? 
There's no cost to entry. You can create a podcast. You can have a, a you know a, a video TV series on Vimeo or YouTube. You can you can do anything. You can create a you know a, a, a PDF and, and and write books and go to Amazon and create eBooks. I mean, none of those things were available when you yeah. and I were around. So it's a totally different world. Yeah, no, it is, uh, and it's a fun world. You know, I I, I really uh, I I love to learn. But, you know, when you're producing content and, you know, you got to learn a new video producing thing or uploading to a different server, it's hard. So, all right, let's go back. You talked about uh, writing a book. First, were you going to school for journalism or for writing at all? And then how did the actual, was... how did the actual book deal come into play? Was that you or did someone approach so... you? Well, so interestingly, so after um, I was Goldie for a few years back at the old barn, back when the collective blood alcohol level and there was about 14. So I got into a lot of trouble as a mischievous mascot. (laughs) In fact, I got into so much trouble that after a game one night as a senior, a publisher approached me and he said, hey, kid, we've been watching you. We want to write a book about all the trouble you've gotten into. As I like to say, apparently it's not appropriate to throw craft cheese singles at the Wisconsin band. Who knew? Cheese heads, right? I I said, look, I'm flattered, but other than my grandmother, I don't know who is going to want to read your book. But that kind of spawned the idea. I said, you know what? Maybe I could write a book about this. Not from my perspective, but from Goldie's perspective. And that's when I called my mom and dad and said, hey, I want to use my money to write and publish a book. And I remember, I remember the words failure, disappointment, a lot of four-letter words. They were furious. They, they, they said, this is going to be a huge mistake. You're going to fail. But this is what I wanted to do. And luckily, they let me do it. And the book became a, a bestseller. I think I did five, six printings of the book. I was doing book signings at the Mall of America, which had just opened. I was doing TV interviews, radio interviews. Companies, CEOs would see me on TV. They were laughing, and they'd say, hey, we have a conference. Come talk to our company. Tell us what you learned from all these hockey players. We'll pay you. I'm like, are you kidding me? You'll pay me to talk? This is crazy. And I remember you know, about, after about the third printing, I got a phone call from my old man, and he's, he's no longer with us, but it's a call I never forgot, and he said, hey, I'm proud of you. Everybody thought you were going to fail, myself included, but then he, he told me something I never forgot, Pitt. He said, I know you want to work in sports, but there's no jobs in sports. You know, you're not, you're not a former athlete. You're not the son of the owner of a team. He said, you got lucky with this first book, but these, first, but these books, they have a shelf life of about one year. You know, you're going to have to reinvent yourself every year. But he said, he said, if this is really what you want to do, he said, if this is your passion, he said, follow your dream. He said, I'll support you, but only if you follow your dream. He said, follow your dream. Otherwise, you're going to spend the rest of your damn life working for somebody else who did. Yeah. And I never forgot that. And, and I did. And I, I've always been on my own. I've never never worked for someone. I've always been the CEO and the janitor of, of my business. And and uh, I never forgot that. So I've, I've been very lucky. And and I've built my business on the backs of amazing humans like you who are generous enough to let me interview them. So this is a cool full circle moment for me because uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very humbled right now being, being on your podcast. Well, that, that, is, uh, that messaging is just so powerful. And it's amazing, you know, when you get into your 40s and 50s and, you know, there's parts of your life that you, you don't think about when you have kids. 
And, you know, when you go revisit, if you go back in time, there, there's always some individual that has said something to you that, you know, changed your trajectory in a positive way. Uh, I've had several uh, through the years. And, you know, so I guess that's what we try to do now is to hopefully affect someone else that's younger than us in, in, yeah. the, same, in the same manner. Um, we call we call those defining moments, yeah. right? That we we call and for the good ones they define us, and for the bad ones we call those chip on our shoulders. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about Tom Brady in my in my in my presentation. I talk about how he wanted to be a first round pick, but he wanted to becoming the last pick of the sixth round. So he uses that as fuel. Every team, every time he plays one of those teams who thirty one teams who passed him over six times, he says, "I wasn't good enough for you." And that's what great athletes do. They have to channel those bits of negativity. They channel those naysayers, those people that doubted them. And those, those are the great ones. That's, as a journalist, I love studying what it is that makes the great ones great and translating that back to business for peak performance. And I love when I hear what you said, a defining moment, you know. And, and I, love, I love the fact about you, Pitt, is that in college, no one worked harder than you. And no one was more of a – there was not one – more feared open ice hitter than Lance Pitlick. You were the best. You were the best. Everyone, people came to games to see you light someone up and to see you years later wear the C for the Ottawa Senators. And I remember I interviewed you for my book called Wearing the C and it was just awesome. And it was based, it was based purely out of respect and leadership. You didn't, you know, you weren't going to be a 50 goal scorer, but you, you just provided value to your team and teammates in so many other ways. And I love that about you. You were such a grinder and you carved out such a great career and you did it on your terms. And I, I just, I just think that's about the coolest thing ever. Well, thank you. Um, you know, we, we only have our, our body of work, our, our word uh, that can really represent us. And, you know, I, I was never, like you, was given, you know, wasn't spoon-fed or anything. You had to go out and work for a living and get what you wanted. But, uh, you know, again, we, we've both been influenced and mentored by some pretty cool hockey people. Uh, one that I'd like to transition to now and to... Uh, a couple other books that you wrote, uh, starting with the two that you authored on legendary hockey coach Herbie Brooks. Uh, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. How did you meet Mr. Brooks? When did the uh, book talk start? And what was it like getting to know this hockey icon? Because I'm sure it was like not out of this world. Yeah, totally. Surreal. Well, I met him when uh, when he gave me the most improved award, right? <laughs> when I was 10. But it was really a full circle affair. Interestingly, one of the first phone calls I got literally the first week I started that book and I made I made it known. I started talking to, you know, some of the coaches, you know, Wooger and and some of the guys and and word got out pretty quickly. And one of the first phone calls I got out of the blue serendipitously was from Herbie and he was coaching in the National Hockey League at the time. He was at the New Jersey organization. And he called me and he said, Ross, I heard about your book. And he said, I want in. He said, he said this book's going to be good for hockey and I want to help you. And it, 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 it was, it, you talk about defining moments in your life. That moment changed my life. And we got together. He, was, he said, I'll be home in a few weeks. Let's get together. I didn't know what to expect. I thought maybe he'd sign an autograph or pat me on the butt. But he told me that his passion was to grow the game. 
And he told me that even though he liked the fact that even though I wasn't good enough to play gopher hockey, that I was still wanted to be a part of the team. And that I still wanted to be a cheerleader and be goldie and, and hang out with the guys and help the team and entertain the fans between the periods. And, and he loved that because he'd still come to games and he'd, he'd watch the shtick. And, and, and he, you know, that was, you know, back at the old barn, there was no video screen. There was no halftime between period entertainment. It was just gopher up on this perch below the scoreboard entertaining drunk fans with, you know, with a bunch of toys. It was craziness. And... He just, you know, I think he saw me a young go-getter who wasn't going to change your world as an athlete, but maybe as a journalist. And, you know, he explained to me that, you know, years earlier, he drove three hours through a blizzard all the way to Fairmont, my hometown, to start a youth hockey program. He told me, he said, Ross, if you really believe in something, you got to get in your car. You got to go meet people face to face and you got to be able to explain the differentiators about why your product is better than the other guy's product. Go down there and tell those parents, your kids shouldn't be playing basketball. They should be playing hockey. He said, give them the tools, help them, and then be a cheerleader. He said, the wider we build the base of this pyramid, the higher we can go. And then he, call, he reached out and he, he called Lou Nanny and Neil Broughton and Glenn Sonmore. And he said, hey, get together with my buddy Ross. He's going to write this book. It's going to be good for hockey. And lo and behold, that was my first book. It was called, you know, Go for Hockey by the Hockey Gopher. And, and uh, you know, it launched my career. And, and, and over the years, I'd interview him. And, and years later, Herb called me one day and he said, you know, I'm ready to write that book. And guess what? You're going to write it. And it was like the voice of God. It was unbelievable. And I'll tell you, the, the, the story, you know, I got to spend almost a year working on that book with Herb. And um, flash forward to the weekend of August 11, 2003, Herb and I were up at uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame golf tournament in Bawabek at Giants Ridge up in the Iron Range. And Herb had to leave early that day. He had a speaking engagement with a big pharmaceutical company in Chicago. So he had to leave about the 11th hole. And uh, everyone said their goodbyes. And then I remember driving home that day, and I was excited. Her book was almost done. And it was going to be a game changer for me. I was going to be out on the speaking circuit with Herb Brooks. I mean, this was going to be a huge deal for me. And I remember turning on the radio, settling in for that three-hour ride home, and I heard the news. Herb didn't make it. He was killed in a car accident driving home that day. If you're a hockey fan, you remember that moment. That was that was You remember where you were. And I remember pulling over and crying and thinking, what can I do? Because this guy really inspired me. And then I remember driving home for the next three hours listening to people called in on the radio, and they talked about about how hockey had changed their lives, about how a hockey game in 1980 had changed them, and how hockey had been woven throughout the fabric of their community, and how it had changed their lives. And eventually, I, I remember coming upon the crash site up in Forest Lake, 35 and 35E, and I saw you know someone had erected a cross with two hockey sticks and a gopher jersey, and I, I kind of lost it. And I thought, you know... So that's when I decided to turn our book into a memorial, and I, cre- I wrote my first book called Remembering Herbie, and I helped to create the Herb Brooks Foundation with his family, with Danny and Kelly, and, and, and I donated proceeds from the book, and, and now I donate all proceeds from all my books from this wonderful organization. I've since written another book called America's Coach, and, and uh, if you saw the movie Miracle, uh, you know, it's just, it, Herb died during the making of the movie, and I remember the producers of Disney came to me, and they said, what can we use from your book? in the movie and I remember I had asked Herbie prophetically about his legacy and he said he said the name on the front of the jersey was always more important than the name on the back it was always we and us never I and me and it was cool they used that line in the movie and it's just you know I'm just blessed I get to share his legacy now and you know I I speak all over the world and and uh, tell companies about Herbie and his legacy and, and about how he pulled off the greatest upset in American sports history and 
And it's just, I feel very humbled. I get to talk about all these great people and uh, I have to pinch myself because I, I get to, uh, you know, like you, I, I get to work in sports and, and not a day goes by where I, I don't think about Herbie. And, and uh, it's hard to believe it's, you know, 2003, almost 20 years ago. But I remember that day like it was yesterday. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I I, I go there uh, every time I go to my cabin to Wisconsin. We go on that inter- interchange there and... You know, I give them a wave or say hi as we drive by. And uh, it's interesting, though, what what do you say? Because that's so consistent with the people that I've talked to over the years regarding him is that he'll always be remembered as the the coach of the 80 team. But what was really his true passion is what you said, is growing the game, uh, growing the experiences, getting more kids involved in this great sport and uh he was all over the place just like you i mean pitt you and i would not be doing what we're doing without herbie i mean we have six division one schools in minnesota thank you herb brooks we have hockey in north carolina and texas and florida and california thank you herb brooks without the miracle on ice happening i'm sorry a lot of these things just don't exist and the fact that you can have a business you know coaching kids doing this or that I could write books about hockey in this community is because of people like Herbie who are so passionate about it. But it, you know, it's amazing getting to know, I interviewed hundreds of people, family members, neighbors. Herbie was passionate about gardening. He was passionate about, you know, so many other things in life. And, and, uh, he was consumed with hockey, but he really did want to grow the game. And, you know, he was, you know, his legacy isn't just that. I mean, he changed conditioning, you know, he, you know, he bringing in guys like Jack Blatherwick and 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 specialists. You know, he would he would have loved a guy like you who could teach players to specialize in making saucer passes and doing certain things, right? I mean, you know, back when he took over the New York Rangers, a lot of people don't realize this, but he was, you know, he he achieved such success. And his teams, you know, back when he coached the Gophers, he could pick his teams. With the Rangers, he couldn't pick them. The general manager picked them. And the, his teams were called the Smurfs because they were these little blue guys, right? And they were playing against the Big Bad Bruins and the Islanders and, and Philly and these really tough teams. And they had great success. And Herbie had to reinvent himself. You know, he had to – he created, you know, dryland training and off-season training. These things didn't exist in the early 80s. But – he just kept finding new ways to to be successful. He he burned a lot of bridges. People remember after you know coaching the U.S. Olympic team, he had, he had a lot of choice words for USA hockey. They pissed him off, so he coached Team France. And guess what? They beat the Americans. A lot of people don't remember That's this, right? right? But Herbie, you know, he was an outlier. He just he just did things his own way, and and. Uh, you know, thank God we had people like like Herbie, and, and and now we've got you know guys like Lou Nanny, and you know we lost Glenn Sonmore. We had guys like John Mariucci, and you know I was just so privileged to chronicle these people. I've written you know so many different books about hockey history and and the history in Minnesota, and and uh, you know it's just cool. Iron Range hockey, Eveleth, you know, just it's just the roots go go back so deep, and I I just feel very privileged to be able to share this history and and to keep it alive. Yeah, no, thank you for. For doing that because uh, if you wouldn't a lot of that would have been lost so very much appreciated did you ever in your conversations with Herbie ever ask him what he wanted to be remembered for he you know he was just he was very humble he, he would always turn questions like that into you know into something about the team and 
You know, I, I think, you know, the movie Miracle got it right. First of all, they hired hockey players they could teach to act versus actors they could teach to play hockey. And the hockey purists appreciate that. But really, in the movie, they got it right. I mean, Herb, you know, when, when they beat the Russians or when they beat the Finns to, to win gold in the 80 Olympics, Herb took off. It wasn't about him. His job was done. Mission accomplished. You know, he he kind of brought these Minnesota kids and Massachusetts to kids together by creating one common enemy, him, you know? And uh, he was willing to fall on the sword to do it. He said, this is the only way we're going to beat these guys. And they were never going to be, you know, he, he knew they didn't have the talent the Russians did, but he knew they weren't going to be outworked and they were going to be, they were going to keep up with them in the third period. And, and, and Pitt, as you know, that's, that's what sports is about. At this level, when you get to that top level, sure, you've got the outliers. You've got Wayne Gretzky and you've got Michael Jordan. You've got those real elite freaks. But by and large, 90% of the athletes are all the same. They've all got the same athletic ability. They run the same 40 time. They can lift the same amount of weights. It comes down to these intangible qualities of how bad you want it and, quite frankly, how in shape you are. And Herbie said, we're going to be the greatest physically conditioned team in the world. And, and if we can just hang with them to the third period, we got a chance. And I, you know, I think that was a big part of his legacy was just proving him wrong and really proving his old man wrong. The defining moment for Herb Brooks' life came back in 1960 when the, the first miracle on ice happened, when Team USA beat the Czechs in Squaw Valley, California, uh, in 1960 to win the first Olympic gold medal. And Herb Brooks, uh, as a lot of people know, maybe a lot of people, listeners don't know, was the last guy cut from that team. And when he, when Herb and his dad, Herb Sr., crusty old, you know, hockey coach from the east side of St. Paul, are watching that game, one of the first televised games in American sports history, 1960, in their basement at their home along Payne Avenue, Herb Brooks Sr. looked to his son and he said, looks like Coach Riley cut the right guy. Oh. That was a defining moment in Herbie's life. He spent the next 10 years playing in every U.S. national team, both U.S. Olympic teams in 64 and 68 in Innsbruck and Grenoble, and he studied the Russians and the Swedes and, and the Norwegians and the Canadians, and he, he came up with his own hybrid style, this creative, uh, artistic, beautiful weave. It was, the, it was the dump and chase, clutch and grab, North American, Canadian, rough and tough style, because back in the day they didn't wear face masks and they had to be tough, but it was this beautiful, creative, imaginative system that he put in and it was a hybrid and it changed hockey he made hockey beautiful it was creative and a lot of people don't give him credit for that but that's how herb wanted to be remembered was for creating his own hybrid style that really took off and we take it for granted now everyone does it but but it was very different and it was radical back in the day oh that it was that it was well again uh really grateful that you were able to chronicle all those moments in his life and then share it with everyone. Uh, what I'd like to do now is to hear some stories that you uncovered when writing Wearing the Sea and uh, Raising Stanley. Uh, what were some of the trends, <laughs> patterns, or common de denominators you discovered during your interviews with these players and coaches? Oh, great question. Well, those were fun books, and I interviewed you know probably 500 NHL captains and NHL Stanley Cup champions. And it was amazing, you know, talking to guys like Joe Sackick and Wayne Gretzky and Zdeno Chara and 
you know, uh, Bobby Clark and uh, Steve Eiserman. And I mean, it was, I was I mean, I'm a kid from Fairmont. I had posters of these people on my walls. <laughs> I mean, I had full blown stage five man crushes on Wayne Gretzky and Joe Sackick. So it, it was it was cool. But. You know, I, I think wearing the C was interesting, um, you know, getting everyone's take on how they lead, why they lead, whether they were a lead-by-example guy, a quiet rah-rah guy, or if they were more of a, a cheerleader. Uh, it was fascinating interviewing guys like Glenn Sonmore. You know, Glenn used to talk about how he chose captains for all the teams he that he, he coached, you know, the North Stars, the old Fighting Saints, and the WHA. And he would always say, you know, I'd let the players vote. But then I counted the votes, <laughs> meaning, you know, he wanted his guy in there. And, you know, you look at a team, a young team, you know, a Chicago making Patrick Kane their captain when they're just a young rookie or keeping it to an old seasoned veteran. You know, I, I like to say, you know, and I, I, wrote, I wrote, you know, these series of books about all different sports. But one of my favorite guys was Harmon Killebrew, the old, you know, the Minnesota Twins. And I got to know Harmon and Harmon used to say, you know, we had captains, but but he was the captain in practice. He didn't wear the C in his jersey, but make no mistake, if you didn't work hard enough, you were going to feel it. You know, Harmon was the captain on road trips, making sure guys got in before curfew. And, and, and that, that's the thing players will say. Oh, there's the captain who guys wears the C, but then we know who the real captain is. Like, right? Like, that was the guy in practice. Yeah. So it was, it was just fascinating. You know, the, the books weren't about me at all. I was the narrator, the purveyor of these long interviews where, you know, I'd, and I would, you know, condense these sort of nuggets of wisdom, these million-dollar ideas down to a few paragraphs so people could sort of digest them easily. But it was a thrill, and I'll tell you what, uh, Joe Sackick hired me to come speak to the Avalanche, which was really cool. And um, it was kind of neat. Gabriel Landeskog read the book and loved it and said, we got to bring this guy to come talk to our team retreat. And I'll tell you what, Pitt, I'll tell you a great story. So I'm negotiating. Patrick Waugh the head coach. Joe Sackick's the GM. They call me. We're negotiating my contract. I would have done it for free had they known. And, I, and, and we get to a number. And uh, I'm like, okay, we're close. So I'm, I'm a negotiator. And I'm like, look, we're close on the number. I'll tell you what. This is what get, get me over the top. I would have said yes either way. But I said, here's the deal. I said, I said, the way it was going to work, they had their team retreat. They had their last game at the Pepsi Center in Denver. Then they make their final cuts, and they're all taking a bus up to Vail. Two-day retreat. They got Navy SEALs one day. They got Ross Bernstein the next day. Pinch myself, right? And I said, okay, look, it's your last preseason game. You guys pretty much know how it's going to go down. I said, what if I sign a one-day contract? You know, like those sick, dying kids. <laughs> one-day contract, and I get to play one shift, your last shift in that last game, and I'll be like Moonlight Graham. I'll get to play one game in the show, right? Joe's like, you know, I'd have to talk to legal, but you'd have probably to sign a waiver. I'm like, oh, my God, this is happening. And then Pat, Patrick Waugh says, no effing way. He says, if I send you out there, I'm going to have the other guy's heavyweight come clean you up. I said, Patrick, I'm cool with that. For 30 seconds, I can run around. I'll take a beating. I'll be a YouTube sensation. This would be amazing. Well, sadly, legal didn't approve it, and I didn't get my wish, but I would have had one shift in the show pit. It would have been amazing, but uh, the, the moral of the story is you, you, you got to ask or you don't get, so I've, I've been able to meet some pretty cool people along the way for sure. Yeah, isn't that the truth? The worst they can say is no. Uh, that's right. That's right. You know what's crazy is that my last year playing in the NHL was in Colorado. I didn't make it out of training camp, but... Patrick Watt, Joe Sackick, Joe Forsberg, uh, Peter Forsberg, 
Adam Foot. Yeah. Um, it was Rob Blake. It, it was incredible. That and what was crazy about that team, you know, you're talking about leaders, and some aren't wearing the C, but that core group of players were the hardest working group in any team I've ever been on. I mean, they set the tempo every practice, and you were just trying to keep up. So uh, there's different levels and different styles, like you said, of people who wear the, the, the C or an A or whatever. Uh, one that you got to interview extensively uh, over a period of time was Wayne Gretzky. How uncommon was that guy compared to the rest of the pack? Well, I, I'm still in awe of Wayne. I mean, as a kid, I mean, my nickname in Fairmont was Gretzky. Not because I was good, but because I was so passionate about hockey. And, they, you know, they just, that's the only guy they knew. But uh, I'm lucky. Wayne's written forwards for a couple of my books. I did biographies of Bill Clement and uh, your old teammate, Robbie Stauber. And I got to know him. I've interviewed him many times. And there couldn't be a more humble, salt of the earth, you know, just dude, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I interview athletes in all sports, but I got to tell you, hockey players are just the most genuine, authentic people. When hockey players get rich, they buy pickups and fishing boats. They don't have posses. They don't have, you know, they don't, these guys aren't, you know, penniless a after five years of retirement. They, 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 they're very humble. And I think, you know, there's, there's an honor code that keeps the people, you know, humble. As you, I wrote a book about the code, about these unwritten rules. And that's a big part of it. You don't, you don't live too too big. You don't you don't show anyone up, and and uh, I think Wayne epitomizes that. He was just a a quality human, and I remember you know interestingly, I, I wrote this this book called The Code about fighting in hockey, and it was it was turned into a movie with an Academy Award winning director, and 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 one of the guys who wrote the foreword was Marty McSorley, and Marty of course for the Edmonton Oilers was Wayne's bodyguard. When Wayne was traded to L.A., it was a package deal. Marty comes with. And, you know, I interviewed a lot of those, you know, old heavyweights, Dave Semenko, and, and if anyone looked cross-eyed at Gretzky, they were going to get it. But interestingly, one of Gretzky's only fights was with Neil Broughton. And, of course, I had a man crush on Neil Broughton, too, but, you know, the code says lightweights fight lightweights. So, you know, if a heavyweight or a middleweight tried to jump Wayne, they were going to get killed by one of those guys. But if Neil wants to fight him, they got to let him go, right? Yeah. And uh, it, it, it was it was a pretty, you can YouTube, but it's pretty funny to watch the two of them go at it. But uh, uh, needless to say, uh, all of Neil's teammates were very mad at him because they said that Semenko and McSorley were all coming after every one of them afterwards just to just to remind them that they, no one touches Wayne. Awesome. <laughs> Man, the game has changed since then, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. Big time. You know, that, that role is no longer around, uh, but it was so critical for so long. Well, and I'll tell you what, before I just want to say, you know, you, I think, I think guys like you really changed the game because Pitt, you, once the rules change after the lockout, they realize that you really can't just have a one dimensional Derek Bugard, and I was, I was, I was, I did a, a, a biography of Bugard. You can't have a one-dimensional guy like that that is purely a heavyweight, you know, a lumbering snuffleupagus who comes off the bench for two minutes. It just, it can't yeah. happen. You need a fourth liner, an agitator, an instigator, uh, a penalty killer, a shot blocker. You need not a T-Rex, but a velocal raptor. And that was you, Pitt. You were a middleweight, and you could score goals. You could grind. You could hit. But you weren't afraid to drop them and, and uh, protect your teammates either. And that's why you were so respected was because 
you'd hit a guy and you knew you had to keep your head in a swivel and they were coming after you. But you know what? A lot of guys wouldn't make a run at you because they knew how tough you are. And you know what's even more cool about that is you're a college kid. And that was unique. A lot of college kids didn't want that role. They weren't willing to take it. You embraced it and uh, it was amazing. And you were rewarded, you know, and, and you look at the guys, not a lot of guys are willing to take that role, but that's, that's the new wave of the NHL today. You, you can't, you know, there's there's no time for fighting. I mean, those spur of the moment, you know, in the moment, if a guy does something dirty, you're, then it's they're going to drop him. But the line fights, the bench clears, those days are gone. The traditional one-way, you know, tie domies and of the world, those guys don't exist anymore. It's it's a new game. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I think it's a better game. We always talk about how great the Olympics are, the World Cup. I still think it has a place in hockey. The game polices itself, which is good. There is an honor code that you have to live by. And and uh, if you don't, the, the laws of karma are going to say you're going to lose some teeth. But uh, I, I think the way you played the game, Pitt, was the right way. And you were one of the most respected players of your era, bar none, for sure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You know, it's interesting because I had a, you know, uh, always had a, a really close friendship with the toughest guy on our team because, A, I wasn't very good at fighting. But B, I knew that, you know, we needed to work together. And there would be times where the the fighter like Peter Worrell that I played with down in Florida, you know, he wasn't getting much ice time the first couple periods and he was up and I was up and he says, Pitt, nothing's going on. Blow someone up and just get out of the way. You know? <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, I, I, you know, at the time it, it you didn't know any different. But now when you see what today's game looks like, uh, the depth of the lineup, the plays that are consistently being made. Uh, I, I think it's a definite improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I remember uh, one of our good mutual friends, Tommy Chorsky, shared a story in that book about how he was a rookie playing with Montreal, and uh, he wanted to show his teammates that he, he could hang, and he got into a fight. And afterwards, in the locker room, the team heavyweight almost beat the crap out of Tom. He said, that's my yeah. job. He said, I don't want you doing my job. He said, if te- teams know you're undisciplined and you're going to drop the mitts, they're just going to keep running around and, and I'm not going to, you're going to make my job very difficult. So it's a fascinating hierarchy of how this honor code works. And I was, you know, it's interesting, Pitt, I was watching your video on your website, which is, which is amazing. And your highlight reel with the, with the, the bone crunching music. One of the guys you hit in the video is Todd Bertuzzi. And interestingly, Todd Bertuzzi was, he wasn't necessarily a fighter. He was kind of a, a middleweight. He, he'd scrap. But I remember the reason I wrote that book, The Code, was because I remember hearing a story about how Bertuzzi broke the code and how he had hit a guy from behind. And, and I wanted to know why. And I started asking the players. And it was one of these things where I said, no one talks about that. It was, un, they truly were the unspoken, unwritten rules. But because... I was a, a player. I was, um, I could, you know, I knew all the guys. I was in the inside the maybe where other journalists weren't. They were able to give me really unique insights. And when that book came out, it was a huge bestseller because it really peeled back a curtain into something where people wonder, why does this exist? And certainly for the kids listening, we don't, in, we don't endorse fighting for hockey, but the old school way of hockey was a big part of the game. And interestingly, if it had not been for Todd Bertuzzi, um, uh, on that hit, 
I never would have learned about or even written about the code, which was a big game changer in my career because that launched a lot of future books with some big national publishers for me. Yeah, no, that's... Uh... And, and and even even today, as as a speaker, you know, I, I keynote about a, you know almost 150 conferences a year. My program's called the Champions Code, and it's about winning with integrity because that's what the code is. It's about playing the game the right way. There's a fine line between cheating and gamesmanship in sports. And if you know you can get away with diving in, in hockey, you can get away with an illegal curved stick. You you can do all sorts of stuff. But if you do something dirty, if you disrespect a guy, if you turtle, if you tape cheap shot, if you hit a take liberties as a smaller player, the honor code says you must be held accountable. And that's why, as professionals, they don't wear face masks because you can't hide behind that mask. You must be accountable. That's what the golden rule says. And that, that's fascinating because I'll tell you what. If the if the football players today didn't wear face masks, you wouldn't see a five eight cornerback dancing, taunting a guy after lighting him up in the end zone. He'd get killed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Well, I know that uh, we're not going to have time to get into uh, what your true passion is now, which is uh, your keynote speaking. Uh, you're all over the world. You're heading to Cabo tomorrow. So I don't want to keep you too long to, you know, get ready for that trip. But one more question. Uh, I get in front, and I have been, I've been getting in front of a lot of really passionate hockey players, both boys and girls, who are striving to achieve some lofty goals. So from what you've learned from those thousand interviews with highly successful hockey players, what's some advice you can provide some aspiring young student-athletes to help them along in their journey where they're at right now early on. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think for starters, I think, you know, aligning with people like you and the values that you bring is a pretty good start if you're a parent. Um, I know I'd want my kid learning from the best. But I think that uh, you, said it, you said a key word in there, student athlete. Do good in school. That's your first priority. Be a student. And... When you're a good student, that leads to a lot of other things. And study the game. Watch YouTube. Watch the games. Have fun. Get involved. Play other sports. Be a well-rounded human being. You know, learn how to throw and catch a ball. Don't just learn how to toe drag. You know, learn other things. Uh, saucer passes are really important, and no one better than Pitt can teach you how to do them and how to be a sniper. But be a, you know, the thing is, you got to own your role. You know, you, you, you look at a guy like Bill Clement who became, the, you know, one of the best face-off men in the business. Or you, or you look at certain players and how they'll, they'll learn certain attributes of the game. And that's what it's about. It's about not necessarily specializing but becoming really good so that you, the coaches can't say no to you. They're going to always find a spot in the lineup for you, even if you're not the best player. There's always going to be someone bigger, faster, stronger than you, but... But I think the, the key, is, it's what we teach at the Herb Brooks Foundation, is for kids to have fun, to play the game the right way with respect, to respect the game, and you know, to really work hard and be a grinder. You know, be the first guy there. Be the last guy to leave. It's the little things. You know, uh, if you're the captain, that means, you know, I, I talk about Wayne Gretzky in my program about being a giver, about how Wayne... You know, Wayne was the NHL's all-time leader in goals, and he was the all-time leader in assists, but he had twice as many assists than goals. And when I, when I asked him about that, he said a goal made one guy happy, but an assist made two guys happy. Wayne was a giver, and he loved helping his teammates, and he would never throw his teammates under the bus. He understood as a team's leader, it was his job to help make them better. So you know what? 
Help make your teammates better. And the coaches will notice you and the cream will rise to the top. So I, I, I'm so proud to live in Minnesota where it is a state of hockey. We have all this hockey. But as the wild learned, there's a lot of other hockey around here. And if you're not producing and doing well, people have options. So, you know, I hope kids can rise up to that next level, whatever that is, and keep playing the game. And now I, I play old man beer league hockey. I love it still. It's, I, I feel like I'm better now, Pitt, at, in my 50s than I was when I was a teenager. And, and I love it. And I, it's a wonderful lifelong game. I remember interviewing Charles Schultz one time, the creator of the Snoopy and, and the Peanuts comic strips. Yep. And if you're if you're if you're a Gen Z, you, you can Google that. But for us old guys, it was about his childhood growing up in Minnesota. That that's where it was, and he he lived out in Santa Rosa, California, in wine country. Years later, they were going to close the rink down there, and he bought it. And he they still have in his honor the old the longest running senior hockey tournament there. And one time he said in his late sixties he was a ringer on a seventy and over team. And that's my dream pit is to be a ringer on a seventy and over team because that would be pretty damn cool. Oh, that such uh, so many great stories, Ross. Uh, I don't want to keep you any longer, but I do want to put you on the spot and ask you to come on. Uh, down the road here to where we can dive into uh, to your 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 keynote speaking because there there's so many good messaging there and the other thing too you know uh, yes you can play hockey into your 70s 80s but you can't play competitive hockey you know there's a, there's a there's a shelf life and expiration there but it it, it is a game that uh, it can be in our lives and and you've found a way, you've manifested a life where uh, your passions are, are, are the forefront every day, but more importantly, uh, you know, kind of similar that we're, we're servants to others. And one of the vehicles we use to, to communicate and pass information on is through the sport of hockey. Um, so that's kind of how I conducted myself there. But we'll get you back on here. I just want to congratulate you for an unreal career. Again, thank you for just, I don't know what you did, just lock yourself in a house or a closet for a few months and start writing, but uh, everything that you've produced has made a, a positive impact on the sport. Thank you. Uh, Herbie has rub off, rubbed off on you uh, tremendously oh, you. By, by giving and trying to grow the game and trying to just to, just to help people. So the last thing uh, before we let you go is, where can people learn some more information about you to find some information about all the books that you've written? You know, I'm not trying to hawk anything on your show. I've, I've got a website, rossbernstein.com, but I want to end it just by throwing it back at you. We talked about the kids, but I want to talk to the parents, anyone considering uh, sending their kids uh, to work with, with Lance's program. I just want to say what an amazing human he is. I want to vouch for him as one of the most quality respected, great guys as a coach, as a human, as a dad. And um, Pitt, I'm so proud of you and your success. And it's such an honor to be on your podcast. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really in awe. This is such a cool thing for me. I'd be, I would love to come back and I talk about a lot of great hockey players in my program. And I would be happy to share some wisdom for your listeners if they think they would, if they would find it interesting. But 
kudos to you, brother. I am excited to get together. Dinner and beers are my treat when we when we get together next time. Somehow, we both have children at the University of Minnesota. I don't know how that happened. We're now old guys, but I'm excited to see you and, and to catch up soon, my no, friend. That'll be awesome. Uh, you would think like we're dating, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I do have a man crush on the pit. There's no question about it. So I might have to call your wife and say she's bumped for this trip to Cabo. <laughs> so... Awesome. Well, just continued success. Uh, thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, have a great trip, and we will catch up when you get back. Sounds great, buddy. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Ross. Well, that's a wrap, Ski, for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed Ross's hockey journey, as it was a unique one. As a reminder, if you want to learn more about all the books he's written or get more information regarding his keynote speaking, just head on over to rossbernstein.com. Before I let you go, I want to thank you for stopping by for a listen. If you think someone in your circle of family and friends might enjoy Ross Bernstein's hockey journey, if you could, please just share it with just one person. It really helps me in growing this hockey community. Again, I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to subscribe. I hope to see you back here soon. And do me a favor, make someone close to you smile today. All the best, my friends.